I'd like you to meet Christine. I'd like you to meet Patrick. Meet Octavio. Meet Mary and Gwen. They're people. People. People with problems and hopes and dreams and lives that are as different as each person. Christine wonders why she feels empty even though everything in her life is perfect. Gwen is wondering how she's going to get through another day. Some are grieving the loss of a loved one. Or the end of a marriage. Others are dealing with the stresses of life. They're all different. But they have the same need. One need. One need. They need answers. Answers. Christine tries to find hers through success. Patrick tries to run from his reality. Mary just wants to forget and... Gwen is just sticking to what she knows. They're all searching for life's answers. And they all want to find truth. Real truth. There are five billion different people on this earth with one need. Truth. The truth. The truth of God's word. They need the truth. God's truth. Truth. Patrick needs to know that the Bible is full of grieving fathers. Mary needs to know that she is never alone. Christine needs to know that true significance can only be found in Christ. And Gwen needs to hear Jesus' call to the weary. They need to know the Word, the Word whose name is Jesus. They need the Word that is true. God's Word. God's truth. They need the truth that will set them free. They need to know the truth. The question is, how will they find it? For the first two months that I've been here, we have talked about the things that we as a church are going to be passionately devoted to doing. And let me say to you this morning that if we were to do all that I have talked about, if we were to do everything that we have mentioned in glorifying God and worshiping Him and, and, and coming together in radical obedience and following Him and doing this life together as a family and all of those things, if we were to do them all well and leave out the one that we're going to talk about today, we would miss a major portion of why we're here. If you think about the reasons that God has placed us on the earth, there are lots of reasons to be here. We, we are here to worship Him. We are here to fellowship with one another. We are here to minister to one another. We are here to grow, to be more like Jesus. But if you take all of those and put them there, there's one that if it's absence, we really miss the mark. And that is following His command to share our faith. You see, the truth is that if you think about those purposes in life, and I shared this in our Sunday night Bible study recently, if you think about those four purposes in our lives, the truth is when we get to heaven, which is the goal of all believers, is to go into a place where they will be there with Jesus. And that is what Jesus has bought us with His blood. And because of that, we are secure in that. That when we get to heaven, we are still going to fellowship with one another. We are still going to minister to one another. We are still going to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we are still going to grow more each and every day. The thing is, when we get to heaven, if we haven't done our part in this devotion, we don't have another chance. 
The song we sang just a minute ago, I love to tell the story, and will me, twill be my theme in glory. The truth is, I am firmly convinced that when we get to heaven, we will be telling the story of Jesus for eternity. All that He has done in us, all that He has done for us, but the problem is, there won't be anybody there to convince. And so we come today to talk about being passionately devoted to sharing our faith. You've got your Bibles turned to Acts chapter 2. And the truth is the reason that it's so important we're passionately devoted to sharing our faith is because of exactly what we just saw in that video. There are people all around us that are hurting. There are people all around us that are in need of God's love, in need of God's Word, in need of God's care. And sometimes in churches, we get so insulated here in this place that we forget about the world that is in need. And I don't know what you think or how you understand our faith or how many of us there are or how many Christians there are in America, but I was reading some statistics this week that were just a little mind-blowing. You see, if you ask the average person on the street if they're Christian, about 60 to 70% of Americans will say that they are. But if you begin to ask them about the basics of our faith, if they have a personal relationship with Jesus, then what you discover is only about three out of every ten Americans are actually followers of Jesus. Now let's put that into perspective for a minute. Sometimes we talk about really huge numbers, like five billion. It's hard to get your hands around that. But just just, uh, for instance... If the statistics are right from the Tennessee Baptist Convention, there are, or a couple of years ago, and this is growing all the time, there were about 5.7 million people that lived in Tennessee. Out of that, 4.6 million are considered unchurched and not to be followers of Jesus. 4.6 million. The sad thing is we're one of the most churched states in America. Part of what has happened in the last 20, 30, 40 years is that Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, have lost their passion for sharing their faith with other people. Now this morning, before we get into the passage of Scripture, I want to give you three facts to remind us of where we are, of what's going on, kind of remind us of the situation. And the first quick fact that I want to give you this morning is that the world that we live in has a problem. You see, Scripture tells us that God created us to in His image and that we were to be in relationship with Him. But in Genesis Chapter 3, very early on in Scripture, man chooses his own way, goes his own direction, and as a result, it says that we are separated from him in our relationship. In the Old Testament, it tells us that all like sheep, we have all gone astray, that we each turned our own way, and as a result, that relationship has been broken. In the New Testament, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of that sin is You know that. The wages of sin is death. Now that's both physical because Adam, who was supposed to live eternally with God, had to physically die because of the sin that they committed. But it's also spiritual. And that when we disobey ever, say one bad word, think one wrong thought, disobey our parents at the age of four willingly, then we have broken the covenant of God's law. And as a result, we are all doomed to go to hell. Now I know that's not politically correct to say sometimes. 
but it's biblical, all right? We have a problem. Now, here's the reality. That means if you have a brother, sister, aunt, uncle, best friend, husband, wife, child, parent that has not had a, an experience or where they have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, no matter how good of a person they are, they are destined for an eternity apart from God. The world has a problem. Here's the second quick fact. God gave us a mandate. Before He left this earth, Jesus said to His disciples that you are to go into all the world and you are to proclaim My Gospel and you are to teach about repentance and you are to baptize them in My name in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He tells them right before He leaves the earth, He says, you are to be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There are several so-called commissions in Scripture and all of them have us being the instruments that God uses to take the Gospel. Here's the truth. God is not going to skywrite in the sky about His salvation plan. He is not going to drop flyers all over America and tell people what it is. He's not going to show up as some amazing spectacle and pronounce it on NBC's nightly news. He has given us the charge. And because the world has a problem and because God has given a mandate, the third thing we see is we have a responsibility. It's our job. Nobody else is going to do it. The cavalry is not coming in. If our friends, neighbors, relatives, parents, children, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters are going to come to Christ, it's going to be because we share the gospel with them. Now, there are a couple of numbers up there, and it's the number 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10. The reality is that 7 out of every 10 North Americans is lost separated from God, not in a relationship with Him. I don't know about you. I don't know what that means for your heart. I don't know what that means for your conscience. I don't know if that can just roll off of you and it doesn't mean a whole lot. But I can tell you this. If you're a passionately devoted follower of Jesus who is worshiping Him, growing to be like Him, praying on a regular basis, that number is going to sear into your heart. And the answer that's going to come out is that we can no longer just sit here. that part of what we've got to do is to get out there and to tell people about Him. In Acts chapter 2, what we have is a story of Peter standing up and giving his first sermon. The very first sermon he ever gives is one of the greatest sermons in the history of all Christianity. Now, I would like to tell you that the first sermon that we, that I ever gave, is one of the greatest in all of Christianity, but the truth is it was six and a half minutes Some of you said it may have been the greatest. It was that short. Six and a half minutes, I said everything I knew I could possibly say, and I sat down. After the service, a deacon told me he'd like to hire me as the preacher for the rest of the time if I was go that long every Sunday. Most of the time out of the gate, your first experience is not good, but Peter comes out and he does an amazing job. And what he does is after they have been blessed by God, they've spoken in languages they did not know, people come and say, what in the world's going on? One group says, it's an amazing thing, it's a miracle of God. Another group says, no, they're just drunks up there talking. Peter gets up and he addresses the crowd. And the first thing that he does, and the first thing that you're going to do, if you're going to share your story with somebody about Jesus, is to simply do that, to tell your story story. Peter gives one of the most interesting openings to a sermon 
in the history of sermons. Chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully. These men are not drunk. Now can you imagine if next Sunday I stood up and I said, let me tell you something right now. Listen closely. I am not drunk. Some of you would get your attention right away. It says in the, another version there that some of you are saying these men are drunk. It isn't true. It's too early for them to get drunk. I like the fact that he doesn't say these men don't ever get drunk. He just says it's too early for that. People don't get drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning. He goes on to say, No, what you see this morning was predicted centuries ago by the prophet Joel. Now what he does there is he gives some prophecy from Joel, but what he basically does is he starts his entire sermon by telling his story. He says, listen, I want to tell you what just happened to us. We were up in the upper room, and and you understand that, that probably they have condensed the sermon here. If you read through the entire sermon here, it would take you about a minute and a half. Now, most people, most scholars believe that when they wrote sermons into Scripture, they consolidated them. So he may have explained to them on a grand level, what you have seen is of God, as the prophet Joel prophesied, and here's what happened in my life. We were in the upper room, we were praying, and God's Spirit descended, and anything that we have done has come from God. He starts by telling His story. Let me tell you, if you get a passion for reaching people for Christ, if you get a passion for telling your coworkers about Christ, if you get a passion for talking to your family around the Thanksgiving table about Christ, if you get a passion for any of that stuff, the best place you can start is with your story. And here's the reason. People can dispute all the facts they want to dispute, but when you tell them about what God has done in your life, they can't dispute it. Well, let me say this. They can't dispute it if it's true. Some people start to tell their story about all the wonderful things God has done in their lives and their family members can go, you don't act any differently today than you did 20 years ago. And you know what? A lot of times that's true. And so you can't tell a story that's not true, but if you have been changed by God and God has done something in your life and moved you into a direction where you're following Him more passionately devoted to His calling and you begin to tell your testimony, you know what? They cannot dispute it. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture comes in the book of John in chapter 9. And it's the story of the man who is born blind. And Jesus comes by and he, he heals the man after some discussion with his disciples. And when he gets the man to heal, the people get mad. The authorities get mad because Jesus is healing. And they're having this great debate. Did he heal by God's power or did he heal by Satan's power? Who, whose power is he healing under? And they begin to have this debate and it goes on for a little while. And somebody finally says, well, go get the man. We'll see what he thinks. And they call this blind man who can now see into their courts and they surround him with all these high-powered officials and they begin to question him like he's on a jury stand and they begin to say, what is the way he heals? How does he heal? And I love this man's response. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I see. 
He says, I, don't, I can't get into all your theological debates, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. Here's the truth. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a story that was, I was blind, but now I see. Now, yours may not have been involved in a lot of, of stuff that you shouldn't be doing, but there was some moment in your life when you realized you needed Christ and you asked Him to come into your life and there ought to be a difference in your life because of what He has done for you. There is a moment that changed who you were and telling your story is simply saying, this is who I was, this is what Christ did, this is who I am now. Some of you may remember from my uh, resume and from my, the, the handout that we gave when we came that part of my past is that I served as a camp pastor for a children's camp from Lifeway called Cross Points, a sports camp. And that was one of those great experiences of my life where I got to stand up every week and talk to children about uh, coming to Jesus. And, and I'll never forget moments of that, of that whole camp experience and standing down and giving the invitation and people coming. But one of the most memorable experiences of that whole summer came not at Cross Point Camp, but at church on Sunday morning. You see, every Sunday we would go to a different church. There would be two or three of us. I was rooming with a guy that was actually a Methodist, and so one week we went to a Methodist church, and one week we'd go to a Baptist church, and we were just going to different Baptist churches. And we had traveled, the, for the summer we traveled six weeks out of ten, but the last five weeks we were in the same spot. And one day, my friend and I decided that we would go. We had another guy with us to a place called Berean Baptist Church. We didn't know anything about Berean Baptist Church, but it was a Baptist church. Berean sounded nice, and we went. We went and we got in and soon recognized that we were in the middle of an African-American church, which was exciting to me because they worship. And we were sitting there, and I'll never forget this thing. We sat about halfway back, right in the middle, right where absolutely no one is sitting this morning. <laughs> and we were sitting there, and the pastor got up, and apparently they didn't have visitors very often. He said, do we have any visitors in our midst this morning? And every eye in that place turned to us. <laughs> My friend, I forgot to tell you, was a red-headed, pale white guy from eastern Kentucky. And so we were sitting there and everybody looked and it was a great service, unbelievable service. And the pastor got up to speak after we had had praise and worship time, after we'd had prayer. And the pastor got up to speak and he began to give this, this sermon about the testimonies of the Bible. And he talked about Joseph's testimony. And he talked about David's testimony. And he talked about the testimony of Jonah and the testimony of Peter. And he went on and on about the testimonies of the Bible. And he got to the end and he was talking about the great testimonies that are there and that it proves once and for all that Jesus is the Christ. And then he just stopped. And I'll never forget, he, he walked to the back of the, of the platform. And there was a chair sitting about right there. And he walked to the back kind of slowly. He was a larger man. And he just plopped. Now, I don't know a good theological term for that. But what he did is he plopped. He just plopped down. And he sat like this. About that time, two guys came over with fans and began to fan him. It was the middle of July. It was hot in that place. And I thought, boy, now that is a way to end a sermon right there. The music director got up, 
moved to the center of the stage, and as he raised his hand to begin the song, I heard, Wait! Wait! And I thought, what? Now, I thought it was over. And he sat there for a minute, and every eye focused on him. And while he was sitting, he just said, You know, we talked about a lot of great testimonies today. But I got one more thing to say. I really don't like that they know how to rhyme in the middle of their sermons sometimes. African American preachers are great at that. I can't do it. And he kind of shifted around just for a second. He stood up slowly. The guys were still just fanning away. He pushed them away. And he looked at us and he said, I got one more thing to say. And about that time, he took a full sprint, jumped off the stage, jumped up two rows, and got right here. And he said, ain't nobody got a testimony like I do. Jonah don't, Joseph don't, Malachi don't, Peter don't, because I was blind and now I see. Now let me tell you something right now. Ain't nobody got a testimony like you. I don't know what your story is. Some of you I've had discussions with, I don't know what it is. I can tell you mine. I was nine years old. I was sitting in First Baptist Church, Dyersburg, Tennessee, and I felt the Spirit of the Lord convict me. I didn't even know what that word meant. Later that week, I was sitting on the floor in my house, and my grandmother was there, and she said to me, Lyle, are you under conviction? I said, what do you mean? She said, do you feel like you need to do something about Jesus? And I said, well, there's this funny thing inside of me that feels like I should. And the next Sunday morning, I sat right over on that side of First Baptist, just as I am, was playing. We're going to sing that a little bit later. And as they were sitting there, I felt the Lord saying, It is time, it is time, it is time. And right on that side of the church, I said to the Lord Jesus, Jesus, come into my heart and save me. And over that time, when that happened, I felt what literally felt like a weight being lifted off of my chest. And I can tell you since that day, my life has not been the same. Now, it hadn't been all great. There have been some ups. There have been some downs. But in the midst of all of that, I know that He has been with me. And when you begin to talk to people about what Jesus has done, sometimes you wonder, well, what do I say? What, what scripture do I use? Where do I go? You just start with your story. Peter says, listen, we're not drunk. I know some of you would like it if we were, but we're not. We're not drunk. The truth is, God has changed our lives. When it comes to sharing your faith, if you're going to be passionately devoted about it, you've got to know your story. I recommend to you today going home and writing your story out. Not because you have to have it precise and all the right words and don't get the dictionary or the thesaurus out and try to figure out all the best way to say it. Just say it from your heart. And when you do, what you'll see is that people's lives can be impacted. After you tell your story, the second thing you do is that you focus on Jesus. I'm going to try to get back without tripping myself here. You focus on Jesus. Look what Peter does here in Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, after he tells them, 
what happened in Joel. Verse 22 it says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God, set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What he begins to do immediately is after he tells them about who he is, about what God has done in his life, is he then focuses on Jesus. You see, if we just tell about all the great things that have happened in our lives, but we leave out the part about Jesus, then we miss the boat completely. Because there is nothing in my power, in my might, that can do anything except from the power that comes from my relationship with Jesus. And the truth is, while the world wants us to believe there are 14,000 different ways to get to God and to find salvation, the truth is, the only way we found salvation, the only way we find purpose, the only way we find relief, the only way we find help, the only way we find satisfaction is through the person of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 in the NIV says it this way, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. Say that with me. No other name. One more time. No other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus saves. Now again, just as telling people that hell is a reality and that if you're separated from God, that's where you're going, is politically incorrect. Telling people that there is one and only way to the Savior of Jesus is His name, and that's the only way to salvation, people think you're crazy today. But here's the truth. If that is true, it by nature excludes everything else. On Wednesday night, we were walking through the book of Acts, and we got to the place where Peter actually says that, and I mentioned to the fact, can you imagine going into a doctor and the doctor diagnoses your condition and he says, and this is the one treatment we know will work without a shadow of a doubt. But I want to try 15 others before we get there. Would that be a popular thing? Would you be excited about that? Go, man, that is the greatest doctor that has ever lived. Because he wants to explore all avenues out there. The truth is, when he says in there, is there is one name alone. And the thing is, if that is true, then we are not biased, we are not prejudiced, we are not uh, irrational, we are not illogical, we are not hateful. We are actually giving people the very thing they need when we tell them about Jesus. So what do we talk about? We just look at the example of Peter here. We talk about his life. We tell them about the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, that He was born to come and to save us. And we tell them about how He grew up and how He lived and how He learned and He grew in stature and knowledge and in favor with God and man. And we tell of His ministry about the way He worked and what He did and the way that He healed people and the way that He talked. We talk about the Sermon on the Mount. We tell them all that we know about Jesus. We tell them about the little children coming unto Him. We tell them the stories that most of us have heard from our childhood in Sunday school. We tell them many of them are going to know those stories. You just tell them the stories. You tell them about His death. You say to Him, listen, this, this Jesus that came, he, he lived a perfect life. Now let's 
talk about that for a minute because his perfect life means a whole lot for his death. Uh, sometimes when I'm talking with children, I'll say, have you ever talked back to your parents? Have you ever thought anything bad at all about your brother or your sister? And I said, now think about this. It tells us in Scripture that Jesus never, ever did anything wrong. Ever. No callous word, no chance thought. He lived a perfect life, and because of that, He has died for my sins. Now, you don't have to go into the gory details. You don't have to show them the passion of the Christ. It's just enough to say that He died in my place. He took my punishment upon Him. And then you talk about the fact that that's not the end, that He rose again from the grave. That three days later, He didn't stay in the grave, but that He rose again from it. And that someday, He's going to come back again. And when He does, He will be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not coming back as a peasant anymore, but that He will come back as ruler and king. And those of us that follow Him will follow Him in that. You just tell His story. I started to make that the second point today, but I wanted to make sure that we understood that we need to focus on Jesus because after you tell your story, you tell His story. And you put the two together. I heard a pastor named Bodie Balkum one time talk about that, that God and Satan have kind of been in this, this chess match, if you will, since eternity passed. And it started with the fact that in heaven, Satan decided one time that he wanted to be like God. And he got some people together to try to revolt against God. And God quashed that revolt because he is all-powerful and Satan is not. And he sent Satan out of heaven. And God decided that he was going to make a race of people that would worship him. And that would be a part of his relationship in an intimate way with him. And so he creates man. And Satan decides he's going to counter-move that move. And he comes and he tempts the man and the woman. And they sin and fall into death. Well, God decides that He's got a counter-move, and so He counter-moves, and it was part of His plan all along. He builds this elaborate system where when they sin, they can come and they can, they can uh, make sacrifice, and as a result, their sins can be forgiven. And if they do that in the right way at the right times, then everything will be okay. Satan tempts them to go the other way, and so God sends a prophet to correct them, and Satan tempts them to walk away, and God sends a prophet to correct, and Satan counteracts with another way, and God sends a prophet to counteract, and Satan counterattacks with another way, and before long, you've got this moving back and forth, back and forth. God moves, Satan countermoves, God moves, Satan countermoves. In the book of Judges, it says that each man did what was right in his own God would send a deliverer. They would come back to God. They would worship Him for a time. And then each man would do what was right in his own eye. And so you have this constant struggle back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Until God finally says, enough of that. I'm going to come down there and take care of this myself. And so He comes in the form of His Son. He lives a perfect life. They take Him and they beat Him and they hurt Him and they put Him on the cross and they nail Him there and they leave Him there until He's dead. They have Roman soldiers make sure He's dead. They seal the tomb. They put guards in front of it. They don't want anybody getting in. They sure didn't think anybody would be getting out. And three days later, as the women go to prepare the bodies, they get there and the words are said... Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And the final checkmate in the chess game of all history had been played. 
When it comes to telling people about our faith, we focus on what God has done in our lives, but that is never the end game. That is never the end. We always move to Jesus. And we tell Him that the truth is that at any moment, at any time, He could come back for His church. And when He does, it's over. That's why we do the third thing. After you tell your story, after you focus on Jesus, then you call for a response. Call for a response. It tells us in Scripture that what happens is in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. It was on the screen just a minute ago. You can just listen, but you can look in there with me. It says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's God has made this man both Lord and Christ. And then in verse 37, I love this part, Peter gives this sermon. He tells them what God has done, what Jesus has done. If you want to look back in the verses that are before, he talks about it being prophesied by David. He talks about what happened beforehand. And he says to them that you've got to understand that it is Jesus who you crucified that is Lord and Christ. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I am convinced of and one of the things that I am devoted to is to make sure that when you present the gospel, you give somebody the chance to respond. And what Peter does in that passage of Scripture is, he says, listen, this is what happened to us. This is who Jesus is. What are you going to do about it? It's that simple. You know, there are classes that you can go through that will train you how to evangelize people. There are 13-week, two-year, four-year programs about how you can evangelize people. Here's what I know. Those things are great, and we're going to do some of them in this church in the future because it helps us to share our faith. But here's the truth. If you've never had an EE class or a witnessing class or a faith class or never been to a 12-week study about how to share your faith, all you have to do is share your story, share his story, and ask them what they're going to do. That's it. It is not rocket science. It is simple. And sometimes I think we use the excuse of I don't know how to do it to stop us from doing it when we've got friends and neighbors and family members that are on the fast track to hell. And we don't take the time to share with them. I don't know your experience with a guy named Rick Warren. He's a pastor of the largest church in America, Saddleback Church, out in California. Rick Warren tells an unbelievable story about the final days of his father's life. And you may not know this about Rick Warren, but Rick Warren is a third-generation Southern Baptist pastor. His grandfather was a bivocational pastor in Oklahoma. His father was a bivocational pastor. And he started just planting a Southern Baptist church in California that's grown to one of the largest in the world. 
And Rick Warren tells a story of his dad dying on his deathbed of an illness and that Rick took off time from the church and went and sat beside him the entire time. And that his dad was a guy that used to go overseas all the time and do construction projects. I know we just had some guys get back from Lynch, Kentucky and did a great job in construction projects. And Rick's dad did that on a regular basis. Every year he would go and, and he, would talk, he, would, he would that was one of his passions was taking the gospel there. And he would build the houses and then he would preach at night. And Rick said in those final days as he was on his deathbed, as he was laying in that hospital bed, that Rick's dad would be in and out of consciousness. And while he was kind of in and out of that state, he would say things like, like, make sure you get that roof square up there. Uh, make sure you, nail, you, you get that nail just right. And could, could you put those two together right over here? And make sure you talk to that local. And he said in the midst of all that, he just kind of was reliving his life. He said on the hours before he passed away, he said his dad, who had been calmed by the medicine, suddenly became very agitated. Very agitated. And started shaking and violently trying to do stuff. And started to grab for whoever was around. And then he just started to say over and over again, I've got to reach one more for Jesus. I've got to reach one more for Jesus. I've got to reach one more for Jesus. Over and over. Rick says that he probably said it 200 times in a few minutes. I've got to reach one more for Jesus. I've got to tell one more about Jesus. I've got to reach one more for Jesus. And he said just moments before he would have passed away and go into heaven, he reached over to Rick Warren, his son, who is this pastor and he said I don't know if my dad knew what he was doing but I think God did because he pushed his hand right on my shoulder and almost as if he was commissioning me he said you got to reach one more for Jesus and Rick Warren said it was at that moment that I decided that there is nothing I can give my life to doing that makes any more difference than reaching people for Jesus And I want to tell you, my goal, my challenge, my desire is to reach one more for Jesus. That's how it starts. People say, well, how many more do you want to see come to salvation? How many more people do you want to baptize? I'll say, well, at least one more. And when I get done with that, I want one more. Because there are five billion people that need Jesus. And if I ever think my work is done on reaching people for Jesus, then I just got to look a little bit farther. If you say to yourself this morning, I don't know a single person that is not saved that I know, then you need to find some people to get to know. Because they're out there. And the question for you this morning is, are you willing to reach one more? I know some of you, because you filled in that last blank, you've already stuck that thing in your Bible and you put it away. If you have, I want you to pull it out. You can do it quietly so your neighbor doesn't see that I'm getting on to you about it there. And this is what I want you to think about. On that sheet of paper, there's some room on the sides for you to write. A few weeks ago, I asked you to be part of a prayer covenant. At the bottom, there was a part I didn't explain because I was waiting for this about how that you're going to reach people for Jesus. And I want you to write just under that where it says reach one more for Jesus, I want you to give a name to the word one. Write down there, one equals And then I want you to give a name. Now, you may be sitting next to people and you don't want them to know who you're talking about. Maybe it's the person you're sitting next to and you just want to write initials or some way that you'll know who it is. But write someone in some way that you know who it is. And I want you to say, this is who I want to reach for Jesus. And I'm going to do everything in my God-given ability to see that they come to Christ. Now, like I said, if you can't write a name down there, you need to pray God will send somebody. 
And if you say, I got 15, write one and then go to the number two. We need to be passionately devoted to reaching people for Him. Would you bow with me this morning? This morning, you may be here. When I gave out numbers, you didn't identify with the numbers, but when I began to talk about what it means to be separated from God or to be convicted, you you don't remember a time in your life when you accepted Jesus as your Savior, when you asked Him to forgive you, when you asked Him to be a part of your life. And this morning, this morning, God is convicting your heart. That conviction is different for each person. Sometimes it feels like a stirring. Sometimes it feels like a burden. But maybe the Lord is just speaking to your heart and you know something is different there. And this morning you need to have this be the moment, the time. That you need to come and to say, Jesus, I want to accept you as my Savior. Maybe when I was talking about your story, you can come up with a story of your own. And this morning you say, it's time for me to come. Now, the truth is, God asks us to come just as we are. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to get right. You don't have to stop doing anything. God wants you just as you are. And this morning, in just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn. And we're going to have a time of prayer. And after that, we're going to stand and sing a hymn. And if you feel the Lord saying, maybe this is the day you need to come, then I'm going to ask you to walk down here to me and to talk to me about that. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer, but you've been looking for a place to plant your life as a follower of Jesus. And you've been visiting here, or this is your first time, or whatever, but for some reason you feel the Lord saying, this is where we need to be. And this morning, during that time of invitation, if that's you, I'm going to ask you to come. Maybe you're here this morning, and even as we talked about the need for people to hear about Jesus, you realize that you haven't done your part. Maybe this morning what you want to do is just come to this altar here at the front. And you just want to pray. And you want to pray that God will give you the opportunity to speak to the person's initials or name that you wrote down. That God will give you the opportunity to speak to them about Jesus. Maybe your heart is just you're going to pray for them to come to know Jesus. And whatever that means for you or for someone else, that you'll be obedient. And this morning, you're going to make a real commitment to to saying that you're going to share your faith with that person by coming and doing that in a public way by, by kneeling and praying here. I know that a a church with this many people, that if we were to get passionately devoted to reaching our neighbors for Jesus, if each one of us in this room were to do our part for that, then it would be amazing what God would do through us. As we would see people feel that baptistry, as we would see lives transformed, as we would see God do imaginably more than we could imagine or ask in our lives. Dear Jesus, we just pray this morning that we'll be obedient to you, whatever that means. That if there's someone here this morning that's not saved, that you'll convict their hearts and you'll bring them. 
Lord, if there's someone that needs to plant their lives here in this church, that You'll allow them to come and to be a part and say, this is where we're planting our life. If it's for prayer for somebody in, in their life that needs to know about You, Lord, that they will come and, and just commit to sharing their faith with them. Lord, we know that it tells us in Scripture that Your desire, Your plan is that none should perish. But Lord, we pray that we will do our part in sharing Your Gospel. And Lord, we pray that in this moment, as we stand and as we sing in just a moment, that we would be completely obedient to You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand and as we sing?